Let's be honest. How many times have you chalked up a relationship ending to bad timing? For hosts Nancy and PJ Heslin, the answer is a lot. It took living separately in Canada, the U.S., and France, two divorces, and 20 years for timing to work out. And when it finally did in the south of France, the couple discovered they had two different versions of their love story. We all do, right? But what if your side is not the whole story, and you have the journals to prove it? Keep listening to Nancy and PJ Finally Get Together, a podcast on love, relationships, and two lives in between. This episode is brought to you by the Podcast Services Division at Lifestuff Media. Having your own podcast allows you to creatively reach all types of audiences, from clients to prospects, to your most loyal membership base. And by utilizing studio affiliates located around the world, coupled with quality remote recording capabilities, Lifestuff Media makes having a corporate podcast easier than ever before. Contact us for a no-obligation consultation at info at lifestuff.com or visit lifestuff.com to learn more. Hey, podcast listeners. Before we dive into the latest episode of Nancy and PJ Finally Get Together, we have some exciting news to share. We've reached 10,000 downloads in five months. We just want to thank everybody so much. We're truly appreciative, and that is awesome. Thank you so much for listening. Check out the link in our episode description to download the Apple Podcast app. They're going to be launching some new features that will make it a lot easier to listen to your favorite podcasts. Let's get the show started. Welcome to episode 14 of Nancy and PJ Finally Get Together. I'm Nancy. And I'm PJ Heslin. Why didn't you say Nancy Heslin? I was trying to throw you the front of there. Nobody's going to know who you are. You're not paying attention. You've been on holiday too Which long. Nancy is it? <laughs> How you doing, PJ? Good. Yes, it's been a little mini holiday for me. I've had four days in a row off. Nice. How did you spend those quality four days, PJ? Uh, when I have a holiday, I always hope to be highbrow and spend it reading and being smart and looking smart. And it ends up just being a Netflix festival. <laughs> it's four days of sloth. <laughs> So this would be uh, no exception then? Yes, I did. Uh, that would be too hard on myself. I did do, yeah, we did a couple of nice long swims. Uh, did a, I'm going to go for a run today. But yes, there was a lot of Netflix, a lot of good Netflix watching. And two things that I really, really enjoyed. Uh, number one, this, they have a documentary on last year's Tour de France, which was, which was awesome. I'm halfway through that. Um, and then another, uh, big surprise was for me was watching the documentary about Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I found fascinating because I'm, I'm, you know, could take or leave Arnold, you know, don't have any strong feelings about him one way or the other. But after watching that, he's a really, really interesting, fascinating human being. What, what did you learn about him? Number one that, uh, I had no idea about this, but he was, before he started his, action movie star career, he was already a millionaire selling real estate. So, which always fascinates me because, you know, you hear movie stars and like, never have a plan B, you know, just go with plan A, which I've always thought that is the dumbest piece of advice for any human being. I'm on what plan Q at this point in my life. And you need a plan B, like, unless you're somebody like Brad Pitt. Like if you're Brad Pitt, you wake up every morning, you look in a mirror and you go, I'm Brad Pitt. I don't need to learn math. And even if he was good in math, his math teachers would be like, hey, Brad, stop the calculus. You're gorgeous. You need to be a movie star. So yeah, it's unless you are that that Brad Pitt person, 
you need, or right, Chris Hemsworth as well. Come on. But you need to have a plan B, C, D, E, F, G. Uh, and that I found that fascinating that he was, he started off and he went to California, used his winnings from bodybuilding, invested in commercial real estate. So in the seventies, he was already a millionaire. So he, you know, when he was going on those, these auditions, he was like, I'm only going to go for movie star roles. I don't need to go for commercial auditions because I was already a millionaire. Stop, stop. Your accent started <laughs> so strong. That I was like, oh, he might pull it off. And then- I always do my, my accents start great. And then they're good for about 10 seconds and then they just fade and I can never redo them again. Yeah. Arnold was like hugely successful, right? Cause he had three fantastic careers. He was a bodybuilder. He was a famous actor and he was the governor of California. So, you know, how did he do that? Like, did they talk about his drive or? Yeah. It seems like a lot of his drive came from his uh, upbringing, his early childhood, as it does for everybody, I would assume. And he had a very, very tough upbringing. I mean, his dad was uh, an alcoholic who, you know, would hit him. And his mom was very stiff and rigid and was very, yes, you must work and all that sort of stuff. Does he say that his dad hit him in the documentary? Yes. Yeah, really? he does admit that his dad hit him. Uh, but yeah, as an adult, he, you know, he talks about his childhood. And he's like, yeah, but don't believe in, you know, complaining <laughs> about it. You know, when these, I hear these people that are 30, 40 years old and they say, Oh, my mommy, my daddy, they were so awful. Hey, get on with it. Move on. See, again, it was, it was going, it was so it was, good it was going well. This, this is drawing to my mind um, the story of you in New York in 97, 98. <laughs> yes, my, my illustrious Arnold Schwarzenegger in purse. I completely forgot about that. I've tried to just block it out of my brain because it was so humiliating. You want to share the story with people? Oh, so this is probably 97 or 98 and I'd moved to New York. I was doing stand-up. We'll talk about that later, how I got there. But uh, my manager knew a woman who booked uh, impersonators. So this woman was like, ah, I've got this gig coming up at Canon Copiers. They're hiring impersonators. Do you want to be a Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonator? And at first I was like, no, I do not. I don't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then she told me how much money was involved. And I said, absolutely, I'll do it. And so I bought the Arnold Schwarzenegger biker type jacket that he had from Terminator and a pair of very big sunglasses to try to hide as much as my face as I could. And this gig was, it was three days. So I show up and it was during their lunch period it was just in the, you know, just in the offices uh, for Canon copiers in downtown New York. Get it? Copiers? Impressions? Copiers? So I show up and I don't look anything like Arnold Schwarzenegger, ex except I've got a biker jacket and big sunglasses. And the other impersonators they hired, you know, there's a Marilyn Monroe impersonator, of course, uh, Stallone impersonator, and they looked exactly like they're the people they were supposed to be. So I'm doing this gig and I'm even the impersonators are like, who's this guy supposed to be? And I'm walking around, people are eating their little lunches and everybody's kind of looking at me like, who's this guy supposed to be? And then finally, the, the woman who is running the event, she's like, okay, so people are wondering like, who are you supposed to be? And so be more like Arnold, like sort of say things and hey, maybe try being like the, the Hans and Franz guys on Saturday Night Live. So I go into the conference room and I'm like, okay, I'm going to try better now. I'm going to really be like a more Arnold. Go into the conference room. People are eating their little canapes off uh, paper plates. And I start doing the Hans and Franz thing. <laughs> you know, hey, pump you up. And then people are like, they're just confused at this point. They're like, what's he, is he, I don't under, and so a third of them are looking at me with just pure hatred. Like, just like, I hate you. 
I don't know what you're doing, but I hate it. And then another third are looking at me like, oh, this poor guy, <laughs> like, look at him in this little bike jacket that he bought. Oh, God. And then another third are just, just ignoring me, just hoping I'll just go away. Pure indifference. So at the end of it, the woman who booked it, the HR woman, I guess, she just she's like, yeah, I don't think we'll need you tomorrow. And I was never more relieved in my life. I just did not want to go through two more days of pure humiliation. Did you look at her and in your best impersonation say, I won't be back? I won't, I won't be back. <laughs> I should have done that. Oh, my God. Time travel, PJ. Time oh, travel. my God. That would have been the cherry on the cake. Or even worry her even more. I'll be back. She'd be like, no, please. Here's $500 more. Don't come back. Well, Arnold actually ties into our theme, which is, is your bar set too high? And... Uh, Yes, I would agree that we both set uh, high standards for ourselves. Yeah, this is all talking about expectations, yep. the pressures we put on ourselves. I think PJ and I are probably both from a generation where you can't quit. There, You had to see things through. I don't know if it was about disappointing your parents. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine this week about the subject, and she calls it grit. Like younger kids, her own kids, she said, just don't seem to have the same grit that we had. And I'm sure historically, it's it just seems like that. Like the the older generations seemed like they were tougher, and you know our grandparents' generation they they went off to war, and they didn't Never have a complain. choice in it. Yeah, yeah, it was like, hey, you're conscripted, you got to go and fight Germans. Okay, here we go. Like imagine trying now that these eighteen year olds trying to put in conscription. I mean, all the the enemy would only have to open up a bag of peanuts. And to be like, no, I'm allergic. I won't fight. Oh, so as we're talking about setting the bar, um, you said in a previous episode, you wrote your LSAT. And yes. I, I didn't know that. Yes, I wrote it. Um, so this is when I was still doing stand-up. And I was I was at the point where I was, I was making enough money doing stand-up and different things, commercial acting, whatever. But I was also sometimes had to go back to like temping or catering work. So I was kind of in an in-between stage. So once again, thinking about plan A, B, C, or D. And I thought, ah, might as well write my LSAT, see where that takes me. Uh, because I had a couple of friends that were already in law school, and I think some had graduated already. So I thought, ah, this is a good backup plan. So wrote my LSAT. And? <laughs> I is did, that the uh, end of the story? I did I quite well yeah. I, I scored in the 90th percentile, which I was quite proud. And, uh, I was, I was thinking about, it definitely was thinking about it, but my, like I said, the same thing it was, it was sort of transitory type of thing. What am I going to do? And I was going back to school actually as well. At the same time I was at U of T and I was taking language courses. I was taking Russian because the wall had just fallen. And this was probably 1991, two or so. And the wall had just fallen in a couple of years. And I thought, oh, Russia's going to open up. It's going to be this huge, big capitalist market. And if I could like get my law degree and speak Russian, man, I'm going to have like a real good high paying job as kind of a, a facilitator between like companies like McDonald's and Russia. And boy, was I wrong about that. <laughs> There's so much about this story that I, I, my so mom, I'm off. My mouth is hanging open here. First of all, you saying anything about capital and income and investments and, you know, you're going to be that guy is, I look at you and I'm like, really? You? Um, wow. So you really didn't go with plan 
no, D that way. I got lucky. I, yes, but you, I got, did you really consider though, like when you when you passed the LSAT, was there was it like I need to make a decision now? Am I going to move forward forward with this or not? Yeah, because I thought even if I don't become a lawyer, a law degree is a good tool to have as a profession uh, or to somehow make a living. Uh, and law school in Canada at that time, it wasn't very expensive. You could go and not uh, incur a bunch of debt. So yeah, no regrets. No, no. So talking about um, the grit, as my friend called it, that we grew up with and having to like succeed and stick with things, see them through. Did you ever quit a job? Um, did I quit a job? No, no. I've been let go from many a job. <laughs> Uh, because as you know, I am the world's worst bartender slash waiter. Yes. So I've been, <laughs> my favorite time being fired, for, and I shouldn't say fired, fired in, I think in tones, you've done something bad uh, or unethical, but uh, I'll just call letting go. I used to work at, there's a great restaurant slash bar in Toronto that is no longer around called Southern Accent. And it was a wonder, oh, such a great restaurant bar. And whenever I work at a restaurant, it's the same thing over and over again. After about two weeks, people are like, man, this guy is so bad at the job. But I get along with everybody so well that everybody's trying to cover for me in the hopes that I'll become better in a week or two. And I never do. And so Southern Accent, I worked there for six weeks. Eventually, a manager takes me aside and she's like, I'm so sorry. And she's crying. She's like, I really like you. Everybody likes you, but I've got to let you go. And she's literally, she's so upset that she's crying because she's got to let me go. And I'm comforting her going, Francis, I know I'm the worst bartender in the world. I, I'm surprised you you should have fired me like three weeks ago. But is it because you're you're slow? Like I don't know I what it is. Love and affection? I, I, I'm not. Yes. As you know, I'm a very methodical person. Uh, I can multitask, but when you are waitering, bartending, you have to sort of have a bunch of plates spinning in the air. I like to watch the plates stop spinning, and then I go to the next plate. And yeah, you can't do that when you're waitering slash bartending. How about you? Have you ever had a job that you quit that you're just like, yeah, that's it. Can't do it anymore. Um, I think so. I mean, in the story in 1994, where we're going to is the first time I quit a job. But yeah, I had lots of jobs that I, I didn't like, but you just kind of stuck it out because that's what you were told to do. You know, you didn't want to disappoint anybody. Mm. And as I get older, there was um, another job that comes along that I loved, but the person I worked for, the morals between us were just so conflicting for mm. me. And that is obviously something I had to work out as I became an adult is that my bar was set too high when it comes to integrity. And maybe I was living my life that way, but I couldn't expect everybody to do that. I couldn't even live up to the way I was setting the bar. As you know, I'm so hard on myself. Yes. So when I did um, quit this job, I think I quit it for the wrong reasons, but I used the moral compass as the excuse because it was the summer of 1994. I remember from last episode, I'd gone back to PEI for six weeks to do this summer language job. And it's like, you know, having a meal at a restaurant that you love, it's so good. You can't wait to go back and have that same meal, but it never is the same, right? Yeah. It just never lives up to that. That second summer in PEI did not live up to my first summer. And I shouldn't have gone, but about five weeks into the program, maybe four weeks into the program, 
some of the teachers had returned and one of them in front of a bunch of students completely humiliated one of the female staff, another teacher. And it was one of those moments that was so shocking that you're observing that you couldn't intercept. You, you just didn't have that quick reflex or quick comment. Like it was just absolutely shocking. And when it sort of ended, I went to the director with the other female teacher and told the director what happened. And it was still kind of like, ah, well, you know, there's only two weeks left of the program. So let's just let it go. We'll keep those two teachers separate. And it wasn't, it was really, for me, it was really serious. Like it was, you can't treat somebody that way. You can't treat them like that in front of other kids. You know, the whole thing was just wrong. He, the guy should have been fired. And in today's, you know, in today's age, he would have been fired. So I decided that I was going to take the moral high ground and quit to prove a point. I was going to quit and show everybody that this is what you have to do to stand up for yourself and to stand up for others. And I was, I was out of my mind. You know, I was already having anxiety attacks. The guy that I thought I liked, whatever, you know, that wasn't working out. And I think that I just needed to get out of this situation I was in. And after you quit, how quickly did you realize that nobody at work really cared about you? Well, when nobody was really coming to my <laughs> exactly. room as I was packing to go to say, hey, goodbye, or hey, thanks for standing up for me. Um, you know, people just put their heads down and they continue on. <laughs> yep. They don't want to get involved. But it was really liberating. And I remember clearly packing my suitcase, listening to Nirvana blaring. And I knew that uh, they couldn't come and complain because I was leaving. But yeah, I definitely realized that taking the high moral ground doesn't change anything. You're gonna make it on your <laughs> own. So I uh, packed up my anxiety and I went home. And yeah, I don't think quitting was the answer. I just want to note how good my singing was on that. Your I was on key. I think I was on pitch. Your Arnold was better. <laughs> and I'm talking about the end of the, the end parts there. You're going to make it on your own. PJ. <laughs> Am I exhausting to live with? <laughs> it's only like early in the morning. I keep thinking, what's he doing all day? I can't figure out whether Nancy finds me more tiring when I'm full of energy or when I have no energy. Because <laughs> yesterday I had no energy and I just got the vibe from you of like, oh, for Christ's sakes, <laughs> you just get off the couch. And now today I'm like, yay, let's And you're like, oh, Christ's sakes, just go for a run, just like a big lap, just get him out in the field, chase some horses. PJ's like a five-year-old boy stuffed in a great big uh, lumberjack body with the soul of a grandmother. It's all, all there. Yeah, he's got a lot of energy going on today. Well, then let's, let's wrap it up so you can get out for your run, PJ. So 1994, summer ends, I've quit my job. I'm feeling pretty bad about that. I don't have plan D, E, F in order, so I haul myself back to Toronto, and I once again move in with my parents, which is so exciting when you're 25. Nothing like moving back uh, in with the folks. So as I was uh, plummeting down, PJ, you were a rising star. What happened? Yes, I got the, uh, it was the apogee of my career. I ended up getting a role on a show called The Mighty Jungle, and that was one of those uh, uh, opportunities where I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And how I ended up landing it was I had previously worked a temp job at a casting agency. And the woman who was supposed to cast these voice roles, she had forgotten <laughs> to cast them. 
So she phoned me, and this is, once again, before portable phones. I just happened to be at home. She phoned me, and she's like, PJ, uh, I need somebody to be down at this studio. Like, right now, I forgot to get people. And is your friend Dave there as well? Da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, yeah. And Dave literally just happened to be there as well. So we go down to the studio. And then, oh, and the other thing she said is like, oh, pretend that it's your fault that you guys screwed up because otherwise I'm going to get in trouble. So we did. We were like, oh, sorry, we forgot. And so we did this thing and it was, we were these voice actors. I don't know how to describe it, but it was a, a live action show, a family sitcom. That, with, with who, PJ? With. Um, Who's the boss? Oh, Tony Danza was one of the voices in it. And um, the storyline is that it's this family that lives in a zoo. The dad is the zookeeper. And these animals, which are these animatronic creations, uh, they can talk to the zookeeper. So they talk to the dad. They don't talk to anybody else. And I was the voice of uh, the seal. And it was amazing. What was your name as the seal? Uh, The voice of the seal was Jack the Seal. Yeah. Uh, And Dave was Winston the orangutan. (laughs) And it was great. I mean, it was, we were doing these voices. It went on air. And then also Dave and I, we would get uh, little live action roles every now and then. So it was, I mean, it was more money than I knew what to do with. But it turned into a long-term Oh, yeah. Gig? So, yeah. So the series went, uh, went for, shot for one, uh, one season. So it was nine months. And it was nine months of employment. It was nine months of uh, going to work and making more money than I'd ever seen in my life. And through that, I was able to uh, afford a down payment for a house in Toronto. That's pretty good. You were only yeah. 29. Uh, I think I was young. Was I young? I was 29. 29. It seems like an old man. Uh, and it was awesome. It was great. Yeah. Wonderful. When you went down for the first um, call, was it supposed to just be that day? And it yes. turned into something longer? Yeah. It was literally just supposed to be for that day because they were shooting the pilot, I think. And it ended up being, Dave and I both got these roles. Uh, and they were looking at other famous people to do those roles, and we beat up those famous people. So we were very proud. Well, it's amazing because it's really just a question of being at the right place yep. at the right time. So let's end this episode then with with you. Um, I'm just visiting your new house, actually. So uh-huh. we are going into my fourth journal. I have nine journals about our relationship. We're entering number four, and it is just about New Year's Eve, New Year's Day of 1995, and I had a chance to go to uh, LA for five days. A friend of mine that I went to France with, he had bought his girlfriend for Christmas a surprise trip to LA and she surprised him by breaking up with him. So he called, he had two first class tickets to LA from Toronto. So I headed off. I don't know how I did this. I had no money, but I ended up in LA. So this journal entry that I chose actually talks a little bit about the trip. And I know that PJ has a girlfriend at the time, so I'm kind of like, ah, don't care. What, what, you know, I can go home on New Year's Eve and it's fine that I'm staying home by myself and all those things. But I chose the entry also because it's um, showing PJ that he will also come here, go away. It wasn't just me that was up and down and not knowing what was going on. So this is the entry. PJ? Wait a minute. Am I going to be shown in a bad light? I don't know if I want to read this. Uh, I'm sitting outside the- What's the date, PJ? Oh, sorry. December 27th, 1994. I'm sitting outside the Blues House as my friend from France is checking out tickets for Public Enemy. No comment. (laughs) Uh, Scarborough meets Compton, uh, which we are going to tonight, as well as the Viper Room. Ooh, look at you guys being trendy. 
I just finished having my tattoo done. Oh my God. The trifecta. <laughs> the reason I chose this, PJ. White girl at hip hop concert, Viper Room and Tattoo. Well done. All Do you your, see how cool I am? Do you think PJ think I'm cool? Mistakes done in one day. Uh at the Sunset Strip. It's a little painful. What? Actual physical pain or just uh, psychological pain? Keep reading, Keep reading. Of bad mistakes. Uh, sorry, it's a little painful. Last night we went to the comedy store. Yeah, that's that would be painful too. And I saw Polly Shore. Wow, this is just a dramatic day. Uh, I still can't believe it. It was like a dream seeing Polly Shore. Oh my God. Uh, Look, I'm not. I'm not proud of these entries. Just, just get through them. L.A. is beautiful. No, it's not. As a person who lived there for ten years, I can safely say it is not. And sunny. It is sunny. I can't believe how lucky I am to be here. And it's only 11:05 a.m. Exactly 11:05. Uh, driving to Las Vegas. Uh, day in Tijuana. This is December 28th. So it's the yeah next day. Uh, once again, driving to Las Vegas. Day in Tijuana. Nobody needs to go to Tijuana. As a person who's been there, you don't need to go. At Bun Boy, getting nachos. Okay. Slotted at the Mirage uh, until 6.30 and only lost two, 20 bucks. 20. 20? Good for you. It's already 3.30, but somehow driving through the desert, everything seems to stand still. There are so many people going places. We stopped at some spot slash casino to get breakfast, and it was nuts. Drive back here was long, left at 1 p.m., and arrived back in L.A. at 8 p.m., Flying back to Toronto tomorrow. So, so I oh, now, sorry, it's like, sorry to interrupt you, but I now celebrate, you know, New Year's Eve by myself yep. thinking PJ has a girlfriend, so I haven't contacted him. So oh. What's the date on this one, PJ? This is January 2nd, 1995. Well, saw PJ tonight. He broke up with his girlfriend. He told me I could live there in March. Huh. I don't even remember this. Uh, my head is spinning. My insides are too. Things are exactly on track. I can feel it. I was so nervous waiting for him. I was blown away by his looks. Of course you were. So this is um, 30th January, but 28 days later. Uh, Oh, good movie, by the way. I saw PJ Saturday night. He told me he wants to stay single. What could I say? I've waited two years to be living in the same city, and I can't change his mind. It hurts as much as the first time we broke up, but he hates me. I don't, could you say hate you? Anyway, so that's it. Yeah, so there's me in one month doing a turnaround. Yeah, but you had said to me at the beginning of the year, hey, like, let's move in, like, move in, and given me this, like, sign of hope. I don't even know what that meant. You can move in. Was and I then, saying move in, move in? Yeah. Or was I saying, like, but you never even said, hey, you just how said, about, I think what I was saying is, hey, you could read the place upstairs. Oh, you misread it. Oh, so I was offering you a great rental agreement. <laughs> oh, I see. And then, like, 28 days later, you yeah. tell me that you don't, just want to be fault. single and you don't want me to move You were in. like, oh, I thought you meant move, like boyfriend, girlfriend move in. I was like, no, no, no. I was just talking about, like, this is a great apartment upstairs. Yeah, again, <laughs> two different stories, right? The lives in between. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share comments on our social media. This podcast is a complimentary project to Nancy and PJ Learn French, a manuscript currently being shopped to publishers. See nancyandpj.com for more on that. Thanks to Isaac, Alyssa, and Dustin at Lifestuff Media. In our next episode, both living in Toronto, Nancy is not enjoying her first office job, while PJ is having the time of his life, personally and professionally.